It's summer. You're with Cape Talk. Summer indeed it is, and what a gorgeous day it is out there. And you are joined this morning by the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. Hey, Chris, good morning. Morning, morning. So we'll dive right into it, shall we, seeing as it is a wonderful summer and diving is the thing to do. Uh, Kino, good morning. Could you please ask Chris to explain what an exponential dilemma is? And that's from Taku. Oh, my goodness. Do you know, I have no idea I'm going to have an exponential dilemma about how I'm going to answer this question. <laughs> Speculating wildly, right? And if someone knows better than me, please do let us know because, you know, this is a live program. We don't see these questions beforehand, so I'm going to speculate. And I apologize if I get this wrong. I would suspect that an exponential dilemma, if you think what is an exponential curve, an exponential curve is 2 to the power of x, where x is number incrementing up, and you then draw this curve which which gets steeper the further along you go it, it climbs in steepness i would suspect that where this person's coming from is that you're in a quandary about something and you think oh what do i do about that and because you worry about the thing that might happen you then worry about 15 more things that could happen if you do one of those things and before you know it you're trying to make so many decisions you're paralyzed by indecision and that means you don't make any decision that's my speculation. But again, if anyone knows better, oh, wow. please let me know. Well, I mean, in, in, in real terms, not that that wasn't real. It was fascinating. Um, if, oh, thanks. I that think, was polite. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, you, you, made, you made a bloody good point. Um, no, what, I'm, what I'm saying is if, if, if you're a business and your industry started adopting technology that grows exponentially and you sat on your hindy doing nothing about it and – that includes not informing yourself, for example, about this technology. And they keep growing, growing, growing. And we know that technology grows at a double exponential rate. Surely that would be a double exponential dilemma for you as a head of that business, is what I'm thinking. Because you're doing nothing about it. And as you were saying, you sit around, you don't make any decisions. And at the end of the day, you just disappear. Yeah, you're probably right. That the fact the fact that very quickly you can not just get behind, but you you fall behind faster with every moment that mm. passes, and so the the problem becomes more and more acute the more time you don't do anything. Can okay, our Jen in Plumstead? Jen, good morning. Morning, Kino. Morning, Chris. Uh, morning, Jen. Um, you know, but if you wear a cup of bangles, right? Yeah. It turns your arm green or blue, whatever you want to call it. Ah. But it, it doesn't do that with some people. And sometimes your arm turns green on some days and it doesn't turn green on other days. So I've heard a theory that it's got to do with the acidity in your body and all kinds of things. But what, what is the real truth? Fascinating question there, Jen. Chris? Hi, Jen. Um, the answer is that the reason you go green in the first place or go green at all is these bangles are copper and copper compounds tend to have a green colour or, under other circumstances, a blue colour. And as you wear the bangle, some of the copper forms copper compounds and leaches onto the surface of your skin, discolouring the skin. You're quite right to suggest that this is acidity. If you put pH indicator, the orange stuff that we use in chemistry labs at school, for example, on your skin, it's called universal indicator, you'll see that it goes a mild orangey-red colour. And this is an indicator that the pH of the skin is about 5 or 4. So it's mildly acidic. And this is because you secrete various proteins and 
other chemicals in sweat onto the skin surface, a little bit of CO2 dissolved in there as well, and the consequence of that is that the pH, the acidity of skin, is is lower than neutral. And metals, copper is one of them, will react under a low pH condition to produce ions of copper and also you've got natural oxidation of copper which it just slowly reacts with oxygen in the air to make copper oxide if you put acid on copper oxide copper metal that's oxidized you will liberate some of those copper ions onto the skin surface and again you've got copper compounds that are colored why that should happen more on some days than others again i'll speculate but i would suggest that this is down to a range of factors what you're doing on those days because the more you sweat or the more damp you're you're becoming and therefore the environment you're working in perhaps it's a day at work or clothes you're wearing or the more you sweat the the more you're going to have acid in contact with the copper and the more you're going to smear the compounds around and spread them up and down your arm and perhaps make the effect more noticeable well there we go jen thank you for asking that question thank you have a good one that's jen n plumstead got a question here via whatsapp chris Good morning to the Naked Scientist. I've recently turned 50 and the hot flushes have started. What exactly is a hot flush? How does it happen? And how long do they last for? Thank you, Michelle here. Hello, Michelle. Here we go. Chris? The answer to this question is that you have to, to think about, first of all, a little bit of a physiology lesson. In your pelvis, so down at the bottom of your tummy, are your two ovaries, if you're female. And those ovaries contain eggs, oocytes. And those oocytes, when you're a baby developing inside your own mother, you have a million plus of them. By the time you're born, you've already dwindled that number down to thousands. And as you go through your life, once you start having a menstrual cycle, every month perhaps 40 to 100 of those uh, remaining eggs are recruited by hormones. They then mature into a mature oocyte which is going to be popped out by the ovary and one becomes the magic one that's going to be released the others regress so every month you use up a supply of your eggs until you've gone through a certain number of menstrual cycles and around about the age of as as this person michelle says about 50 you get to a stage where the number of eggs that are left in the ovary is really low now what normally happens is that those eggs begin to mature under influence from hormones which come from the pituitary gland which is a tiny gland that dangles under your brain and it releases two critical hormones there's one called fsh and one called lh fsh stands for follicle stimulating hormone and lh stands for luteinizing hormone these come out of the pituitary they go in the bloodstream down to the ovary and the fsh tells the ovary start making some eggs ready to release and as those eggs increase in size and they mature they start to produce estrogen and estrogen goes round in the bloodstream back to the pituitary and says i'm making lots of estrogen so there's lots of eggs being made you can turn off the supply of fsh a bit and so there's this cycle going on where one bit of the body is talking hormonally to the other and this keeps the cycle in check and at the right moment in the month around day 14 luteinizing hormone surges cause the egg that's matured to pop out of the ovary and you ovulate and this cycle goes on for about 30 years 40 years in some people's cases now as the ovary runs out of eggs the signal of estrogen that it makes to go back to the brain and to say turn off the supply of fsh we're making enough eggs that begins to dwindle and as that signal back to the brain is cut down 
the brain assumes that the ovary can't hear it, so it shouts hormonally a bit louder and makes a bit more FSH, which it sends down to the ovary. And the ovary, of course, can't respond because it doesn't have a mature supply of eggs or enough eggs to do that. And you get these wild swings of hormone levels. And as far as we can tell, they seem to be associated with many of the symptoms of the menopause. And those include symptoms like hot flushes, waking up in the middle of the night feeling roasting hot or sweating hot, sudden hot flushes during the day. They do tend to go on for a number of years and some people find them very disabling, others less so. One way to combat them is to put back some of the hormones that have been lost because of the ovaries becoming uh, depleted in eggs. So you can get a skin patch, for example, which can put some oestrogen back into the bloodstream, and this can help to switch down those symptoms. Um, it, it's not universally accepted as completely safe because there is, an, there is evidence that this could increase your risk of certain hormone-dependent tumours like breast cancer, but but this is part of the decision you have to weigh up when you decide what's worse, the increase in risk of something like breast cancer or the symptoms that you're suffering if you're finding them disabling. Okay, you're listening to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, and your calls, any questions about everyday life, he's got a scientific answer for you, 99.99999.9% of the time. Uh, here's a WhatsApp question. Why do we feel out of breath like we had a workout after drinking water? I don't know. I've never had that. Have you had that? No. No. I, I, I haven't. No, I've never had the, the experience of having a drink of water and, and feeling out of breath. The only thing I can think of is it was perhaps very cold water. And if you swallow very cold water very quickly, it goes down inside you and cools the esophagus. And the esophagus is innervated by your visceral nervous system. And it might be that that cooling effect has a stimulating effect because the esophagus and the windpipe are very close together inside. They run down through the mediastinum and the, the central core of your body. It might well be that some of the, the thermal difference is being transferred between one and the other or into the nerves that, that co-supply both and fools your windpipe into feeling it's a, it's a bit colder than it really is and perhaps that then triggers this momentary sensation of breathlessness. But I, I haven't experienced that myself. Seven minutes left with the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. A question, Chris, which is more dangerous uh, between a viral and a bacterial infection and why? I would say that uh, they're both equally bad, and I can give you examples of that. If you take, say, tuberculosis, I can guarantee that in the time that this, this program is on air, there will be hundreds of deaths because of tuberculosis around the world. Equivalently, HIV is a massive scourge and there are close to 40 million people living with this virus around the world and the number of people that have died of HIV over the time that we've identified, known and been diagnosing this virus is probably measured close to 100 million people who have died. So both in the, in the wrong place, wrong time are really nasty so there is no, there is no contest here. Uh, what I will say though is that there are bacteria on the other flip side of this coin that are good for you. And if it were not for our microbiome, which is the assemblage of microorganisms that live on us and in us, and in fact outnumber us, because the number of cells of, of our bodies sums to about 37 trillion in your average adult, the number of bacteria is probably uh, at least 37 trillion, maybe as many as 100 trillion microbes living in your guts. 
many of those, without them, we would be far less healthy. So I think the question and the answer to the question is a little bit more subtle than just what's worse, because there are viruses that, that are really horrible, and there are viruses that are trivial, like a cold virus. There are bacteria which are really horrible, like the plague and like TB, but there are also members of the microbial world that we couldn't live without and be healthy. Here's an interesting one from Colleen in Dipriva. I don't know how much of a scientific answer there might be to this, but uh, apart from a kitchen, why are electrical outlets always placed near the floor? That's a a very good question. And I think probably it's down to a number of practical elements. One, often in many buildings, especially offices, but also houses, you run the wires around the base of the wall in conduits or you bring them down in a hidden conduit. And where is the wire less likely to be a problem uh, when it's not trailing across a room? So it's more practical to put it down at the bottom. It's close to the root supply in many offices and trunking, for example, but it's also going to have the shortest cable that's not going to get in the way to get to a device. Most devices you're going to power sit on a surface or on the floor. So I think that's probably the, the reason. Another question that came in here. Do you know anything about ketamines for the treatment of depression or other mental illnesses? Yeah, I mean, ketamine is one of a a family of general anaesthetic agents. We often use it in the operating theatre. It's an analogue of a chemical called fencyclidine, and it seems to produce an interesting effect in the brain in that it doesn't just cause anaesthesia. It increases the blood flow during anaesthesia so it's actually really useful if you're an older person where there's a danger of say stroke if you have an anaesthetic so you you can rest assured that you're not going to reduce a person's blood flow with this agent but it also produces when a person uses it what we call a catatonic dissociative amnesia in other words it can erode memories and there was a paper that came out a guy called Ravi Das who's at University College London about two weeks ago published a paper in which they took people who were not alcoholics but they were heavy drinkers and these people effectively had a a drinking problem in the sense that they would overindulge to the tune of maybe 70 units a week of alcohol which is a fairly prolific intake and in this bunch of individuals they showed them a pint of beer and got them salivating telling them you're going to be able to drink this in a minute and then they asked them to uh, give various bits of feedback and, and recall various nice thoughts about when they enjoy drinking a pint of beer then they gave them a shot of ketamine and took the beer away. And their rationale for doing this is the ketamine loosens the association between fond memories of, addictive memories of, and the thing that you're addicted to, the beer. And when they then followed these people who went through one single trial of doing this, for nine months they halved their alcohol intake without any other intervention. Now, it, it may be, and there is a school of thought, that certain mental illnesses are because we think ourselves into a particular mental position. And therefore, it becomes a learned response to a certain extent. And so you, you become depressed, for example, because you've learned all the associations and triggers that, that make you feel down. If you could loosen that learned behavior and make a person more likely to embrace the positive so you become to take another booze analogy glass half full not half empty this may help some people to put themselves on the road to recovery so people are also interested in using these drugs that make people think a bit more outside the box or or loosen the rigidity of of learned things in our and associations of, of learning in order to make us embrace novelty a bit better uh, under certain circumstances i'm not so familiar with the literature on depression but the the paper on 
alcohol and alcohol dependency was very interesting and it made a lot of lot of waves around the world when they published that a couple of weeks ago. Another question in here. Last week we spoke about the sound of the crackling of knuckles and the effect thereof that is due to the sudden formation of and collapse of nitrogen bubbles in the joints. How is it that we don't suffer from an air embolism? The the reason for this is that the and, and it is true and and I gave that example of Greg Korchuk's work. Mm. He was at the University of Alberta that yep. they put string on people's fingers and made bubbles pop into existence inside joints. But the reason that you don't then get an embolism is embolisms emboli occur in blood vessels. The joints are not supplied by blood vessels that directly connect to the joint space. So the bubble is isolated inside the synovial fluid inside a joint. And although there is a blood supply to the cartilage that makes that synovial fluid and the ligaments around the joint, the blood that's flowing through the blood vessels is not in direct communication with the joint space, otherwise you'd be bleeding into your joints. Therefore, the bubble has no easy route to get into the blood. And therefore, you can't get the bubble into the bloodstream and, and up to your lungs to cause an air embolism. Well, there we go, Chris. And that's where we're going to leave it. Always enjoy having you on the show, sir. Chris, great chatting to you as always. Thanks, Kino. Dr. Chris Smith there, the Naked Scientist. Thank you very much for tuning in.